that we can come this morning and we can worship you as one family. Father, we can't even begin to imagine just how great and how vast is your love for us, Father. And just even the small little bit of worship that we can offer, Father, we just ask that it might be a sweet scent to you and that it might just uh, be a blessing, Father. I just ask your uh, continued hand on the service today. Just ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. So the three words that I'm sure Eric Miller hates to hear from a pastoral intern, I'm feeling spontaneous. I didn't intend to do this, but I was so blessed by worship this morning. I don't know if you guys realize how much time and effort that the worship team puts in to practice. Um, not so that they can put on a show, uh, not so that they can glorify themselves, but that they can honor God through their skills as they lead us in worship. And uh, why don't this morning, why don't we just show them our appreciation through a round of applause? There's many, uh, many elements to the church, the local body of Christ, um, the worship team being, being one of them. Um, one thing that we had the opportunity to do this weekend, if, uh, if I could get that picture up here, um, the pastoral intern group, we had a chance to go to Pittsburgh, PA, uh, to attend the Ligonier Conference. Um, the subject was the importance of continuing the Reformation. And uh, it was a fantastic weekend, or two days. And uh, I was just, I was so filled with just happiness to be with this group of people that we share so much in common with, and that we have this kindred spirit with. We were, we're unified. And even more than that, at this conference, we are gathered with many, many people from all over the United States, a lot of different views, you know, different cultures, but we were worshiping in unity. And that's something that, uh, you can take it away now, but that's something that is so important in the church, and it's something that we're going to see a little bit here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But it's very important at the same time that we understand the reason for our unity. I'm sure that uh, most of you guys have been following along in the reading plan. And as you know, we are in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And so, if you could turn there with me, and we're going to get straight into the reading of the Word this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I'm going to be reading the, whole ch- the, the remaining part of the chapter uh, this morning, and then we're going to be walking back through it and just looking at it verse by verse. Um, I will say the one thing, uh, at the Ligonier Conference, there's a few things I learned about preaching. You have to preach a very long message, you have to use a lot of Greek, and uh, you have to have a really cool accent. So having just come back from that yesterday, 
I promise you, I'm going to preach a short message. I'm going to use one Greek word, and I'm not even going to attempt an accent because they all come out as Australian. (laughs) But if you guys are all turned to the scripture, let's begin. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, and having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's bow our head for prayer one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is infallible. We thank you, Father, that it is inspired. And we thank you for the promise that your word will not return void. Father, we know that in an audience this size, there's likely to be hearts that are many different types of soil. Father, I just ask that the word that is preached this morning, Father, that that seed would fall on soft hearts. And if there is conviction, Father, that we would look at that conviction as a blessing from you because it gives us an opportunity to come back into alignment with you and your word. Father, we just ask these things in your name. Amen. As those of you who are following in the church reading plan know, and as we just read, we are in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. And I wasn't here for last week's message. Um... But I'm sure that you guys noticed the transition in tone from the first chapter of Ephesians to the second chapter. Through chapter 1, the text is overflowing with wonderful statements of promise and words of praise from the Apostle Paul. But in chapter 2, he starts off listing just how helplessly lost and without hope that we were before Christ. And before the work of regeneration that awakens our hearts to the grace that we received as a gift from God. And as we look at the second half of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to continue with this theme. And he's going to be aiming specifically at the Gentiles in the Ephesian church this morning. He's going to call them to remember just how desperate their situation was before Christ. Now, keep in mind that Paul, uh, he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and uh, he even confirms that in Romans 11, 
when he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He then goes on to say that he even magnifies that calling in order to make the Jews jealous, so that even some of them might be saved as well. To us today, the inclusion of the Gentiles might not seem like a big deal. We know that the gospel is for everyone. Paul even references this in Romans 1.16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. And today we're going to be looking at these two formerly opposed groups and how the work of Jesus Christ was the answer for them in their situation. And how, the very, how that very same work of Jesus is the answer for our modern church today in whatever issues that we may face. Um, I want to give you just a bit of a background on this separation between the Jew and the Gentile. But I just want to be clear, it's, um, we can draw certain parallels from something like this, but... Use your imagination a little bit because there's not always the perfect parallel, um, but I think the, the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue is something that we can draw from. So there was this debate among the Jews in the early church whether or not the Gentiles should be included in the Christian church. After all, the Jews were God's chosen people. If we look in Genesis, we see the covenant that was established between God and Abraham this covenant promised Abraham and his lineage that they would be God's chosen people. They would be set apart from the rest of the world. They would be his own. They would be blessed among nations. And in Romans 9, Paul even points back to the benefits of the Jew based on that Abrahamic covenant. In verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, he says, They are all Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. And the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So this covenant that God made with Abraham, and to his seed by extension, um, it's pretty impressive. I, I don't think there's many of us that would not want to be in on something like that, to be part of such a blessed people. And the Jews historically by God's own words and traditions that they kept, were, they were God's chosen people. This was a very big deal. And the very act that they used as a sign of being partakers of the covenant was the physical act of circumcision. And this act, this sign, was a great source of pride. They had much of their identity wrapped up in it to the point that the term uncircumcision, when pointed at a Gentile, was considered to be a great insult. And that's where we're going to pick this up, beginning in verse 11. Paul begins with the first commandment that we find in the letter of Ephesians. And that's found in verse 11, where he says, Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, here very clearly saying, hey Gentiles, yeah, you guys, um, you guys that have been called this derogatory term, I'm talking to you. And as soon as he makes sure that he knows, hey, I'm talking to you, 
he goes straight on in verse 12, and again, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this call by Paul um, that they remember, the way that the word remember is used here is not just a random memory that pops into your head as you're driving down the road and you're like, hey, passenger, look at that thing there. Remember what we saw that one time? It's not that kind of thing. Um, Because those memories, they pop into our head, they're gone. But the kind of, uh, and I'm going to be honest, that happens to me a lot. (laughs) You can ask my wife. uh, You can ask Joe and Tanya. Uh, We had the pleasure of driving with them to Pittsburgh uh, this past weekend. And I don't even know if they're here this morning, but uh, at one point after I randomly interjected something that popped into my head, Tanya said something to the effect of, were you just saying so-and-so and then squirrel? And I was like, yes, that's how I am. That's the way my brain works. This is not the kind of memory Paul is talking or calling us to right now. He is talking about uh, the type of remembrance that's an active recall. It's concentrated on this memory to put ourselves in that time, recalling the feelings and the emotions, to experience it in our minds. And uh, I I guess for example, if you were to observe the life of somebody who lived, uh, let's say, through the Great Depression, you would notice that they have a particular approach to the way that they live. Uh, They wouldn't take food for granted. Possessions they wouldn't take for granted. Um, They would approach life with frugality and without wasting, wasting resources. Why is this? It's because they remember. They remember the hopelessness, the hunger, the unemployment, the life of want. I mean, even some of these were selling their children off just so that they knew that their children would go somewhere where they could have food to eat. I can't imagine that. But they remembered that pain. And that pain, that memory, it drove and shape their actions for the rest of their lives because they don't want to repeat those experiences. And this is exactly the type of remembrance that we should have about our former life, our former situation before Christ. You see, sometimes it is through the pain of a memory that we are able, that we are able to enjoy the good of the moment more fully. If, we all, if all we've ever experienced is a good life, I guarantee you, you're not experiencing it to the fullest extent because you don't have the pain of circumstance to contrast with what you're experiencing now. And so this morning, as we look at these five realities that Paul reminds the Gentiles about, I want us to remember these things were also true for us. 
and they remain true for anyone who has not placed their faith in the finished work of Christ as their Savior. As we walk through them, if you claim Christ as your Savior, I want you to remember. Maybe you need to close your eyes, whatever you need to do. But remember, try to put yourself in that place so that we can come out on the other side and see the beauty of what God has done. Number one, the first reality that we see, we are separated from Christ. And here's the one Greek word for you guys. I'm probably going to butcher it, uh, but the Greek word is kourese. Um, and the translation here is separated, and the, and the, the reason um, that I wanted to, to highlight this specific word is it appears 42 times in the Bible, but here is the only place where that specific Greek word is translated as separated. It is most often used to illustrate being apart or without. It's the same word that appears in John 15, 5, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we see it used here, saying that we were separated from Christ, remember that root word. If we are apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It's the same way that without oxygen, or apart from oxygen, we wouldn't function. No matter how hard we try to will ourselves to continue living, and you can fight me on this, but if you don't believe me, hold your breath for 10 minutes and then get back to me on it. Because I guarantee you, I, I won't have any of you coming back to me. It is essential, and that is the same way Christ is essential in our life the very air that we breathe. We can't take a, a moment for granted. How many of you go through the day and every breath that you breathe in, you're like, oh, thank God I breathed again. I bet most of us can go years at a time without thinking how every breath literally is a gift from God. The second reality that we see is we are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, to be alienated is to be isolated from something, to be estranged or unwelcome. Have you ever been that person at a, at a, let's say, an event, and you felt like you were just out of place, you weren't welcome, you didn't belong, the host really didn't want you there? What does that feel like? I've felt it. It doesn't feel good. It's definitely not an experience that I want to repeat. But even if we experience that on the earthly level, it is nothing compared to being alienated on the spiritual level. But in this case, it's showing how the Gentiles, when in the Jewish community or realm of influence, they were unwelcome, they were truly outsiders. Do you remember what it was like to be alienated from Christ? I do. Reality number three, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And if you remember in the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about earlier, it included promises of land, lineage, and blessing. These promises were guaranteed by an almighty God. 
Like I said before, that's the kind of covenant that you want to get in on. But the Gentiles, it says, were strangers to the covenants of promises or not a party to those covenantal promises. They could not participate. In the same way, without Christ, we have no claim on the covenantal promises of these blessings. And while these blessings under the uh, Abrahamic covenant, uh, covenant was typically physically manifested, the promises of those things for the believer today is not necessarily of this world, but of the one to come. And this is unlike so much of the teaching that we see today that promises these blessings in here and now. Not saying that God can't bless you physically, you know, financially, whatever, here and now. That's not the focus. That's not the thrust of Christ's ministry to give us blessing here and now. But we have access through the new covenant into spiritual blessings in heaven. The fourth reality, no hope. Let's stop for a minute on this one because this one hits a little harder sometimes. And I'm not going to ask you to answer this out loud, but think to yourself, have you ever been to a point in your life where you truly felt you have no hope? And although there are times or situations where we may feel that way, it's, uh, it's probable that we have never been in a situation that was completely without hope, save one, and that is before we knew Christ. That is the only situation where there is truly not even a glimmer of hope, none at all. So you remember when you look back to that time in your life when you had no hope. And what is hope? Hope gives us a reason to live. It gives us a reason to continue, to go on. Without Christ, no hope. What do we have to look forward to? But this word hope is referenced in 1 Peter 1.3 as a living hope, a certainty. So in this case, we are living without that certain hope before we come to know Christ. And the fifth reality, without God in this world. I'm going to cheat a little bit here, and I'm just going to read what my Bible commentary said because I liked it. It goes like this. God has revealed himself to all humanity in nature and in conscience. Yet this general or natural revelation is insufficient to save. And apart from the Lord's act of regeneration, all people suppress the truth that this revelation gives them. The Gentiles whom Paul addresses in Ephesians were particularly bad off before Christ because they had no access to the Lord's special revelation to Israel, which reveals the plan of salvation. And so they turned to idolatry, it remains true today that all those who are strangers to the covenants of promise have no access to the special revelation, the Bible, and are without hope and without God in the world. They have no way of knowing his plan of redemption. And in fact, Scripture says we are at war with God. We are naturally opposed to God and his sovereignty. And that's an awful lot of darkness and despair to be packed in 
to one verse, all of those five points. But those five realities paint a pretty dark picture for the Gentiles of the Ephesian church, and they paint a dark picture for our former lives and for the lives of those who are not yet saved. And as we look at these five realities, what did you feel? What did you remember? If you've truly experienced Christ in your life, when you look back to that darkness, I don't think you can help but just feel that hopelessness again, that separation. But the beauty of it is if you are in Christ, that feeling of hopelessness and separation, it can be like those fleeting memories. We don't have to remember. We don't have to live there because we've got a greater reality. But if you are here today and those five realities were not just memories, but rather they were descriptions of your life, then you are likely still in need of Christ's saving grace. And I pray if there is someone here like that this morning that what Paul says next is an encouragement. And I'm here to tell you it is good news. And you will see it beginning in just the next two words in verse 13. But now. And there are a few word combinations in Scripture that can have as profound an impact as the word but followed by whatever follows it. Because oftentimes it is used in the sense of a 180 degree reversal from a situation of despair or something bleak to something completely life changing. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Isn't that amazing? Those five realities that we looked at, uh, they're old news if you are in Christ Jesus. We have been brought near, near to God by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. And not just that, we have peace, but he is, he is our peace. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And just for a bit of background on that particular verse uh, or uh, section there, uh, there was a literal dividing wall in the Jewish temple between the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, even if you were converted or you know, trained to worship in the temple, you could not step across into the Jewish court. In fact, it was so serious that they had signs put up every couple paces that said, if you are a Gentile and you cross into the Jewish court, you will be responsible for your own death because you will be executed for encroaching on the Jewish side. Their death would be on their shoulders. So when Paul tells them that this dividing wall has been torn down through Christ, they immediately would recognize the implications of uniting together 
through Christ as fellow believers in the church. And he goes on further uh, to further this point in verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. They both received the same message of peace. Two parties who were once opposed to each other received the same message through Christ. Now they can become one. And uh, when I was reading um, this and thinking about the promises of peace, as a World War II history fanatic, there was one particular scene that jumped into my mind, and I am going to jump on Taylor Eaton here and ask him what that scene was when it refers to promises of peace. Oh, boy. I figured for sure I picked the right guy there. What I'm referring to is British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain getting off a plane in 1938 and declaring, I have returned from Germany with peace for our time. We'll see how that turned out. But here's the difference. Neville Chamberlain was basing or declaring this peace based upon the word of Adolf Hitler. And as far as reliability and trustworthy people go, he is not very high up on my list, just to be clear. However, when we have an expectation of peace that is based on the word or the declaration of Christ, there is no more trustworthy source than that. We can believe it 100%, and you can be assured beyond all doubt that it is guaranteed that we have peace in our time. So now that the basis for peace between the Jew and Gentile has been established through the finished work of Christ, Paul goes on to explain why this is true. In verse 18, excuse me, in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, the Father that we were previously at war with. The same spirit that was given to the Jewish believers in the early church, this same spirit is avail- available, that was available for the Gentiles, is available for us today so that we also can have access to the Father. We no longer have to be at war. Through this spirit, we can have access. We can communicate directly with him. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And then when we go from the five pre-Christ realities to the promises for those who are in Christ, verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Brothers and sisters, the news could not be better Our place is outcasts or unwanted or rejected. It has been replaced with acceptance, fellow citizens, members of the very household of Almighty God. And citizenship is a very important thing. If you were a citizen of a sovereign country, United States, for example, uh, no matter where you are abroad, if you're in trouble claiming that citizenship you can pretty much guarantee, in most cases, that that government will do everything that they can to assist you, to get you out. Now, I say in most cases because these are earthly governments. They can't do everything. But as citizens 
in a heavenly kingdom, the ruler of which is the almighty creator of the universe, we are citizens in a kingdom where we have the ultimate authority on our side. We have no fear going forward because we have God for us. And then we take it a step further and we see beyond citizenship, we are members of the household of God. And you cannot be more intimately integrated or recognized than as the moment when you're recognized as a member of a household, your family. And not only that, but our Father is the most sovereign King throughout of all, of, all of eternity. He is the very Father who out of His abundance of mercy provided grace, unmerited and free, not because of us, not for our glory, but for His. Then going on into verse 20 through the end of the chapter, Paul shows how this united body or temple is to be built. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I love the fact that Christ is the cornerstone, because uh, the cornerstone, it serves um, at the base as part of the foundation where uh, two walls or two parts of the foundation will come together and be joined. And so he says that he, Christ, the chief cornerstone, along with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, uh, he talks about them being joined together and, and the cornerstone unifying that 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 gap between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, I think it's so symbolic that he's the cornerstone there to form that solid, sound, that solid foundation. <laughs> and not only the prophets and the apostles are joined together, but the whole structure is brought together through the very cornerstone of Jesus Christ. A worship team, you can come up now. Um, this last part here, is the part that was kind of hard on me, to be honest. And I struggled for a long time about this. And thankfully, I got some good advice from Eric and Matt. Um, but like in the, in the uh, Ephesian church in this example, there are times where there is conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. There are times where unity is lacking, to say the least. And there is a lot of disunity around us in general today, not necessarily all within this church. I mean, I don't know of any within this church, to be honest, but any place where there's human, I'm sure, humans, I'm sure there's place for disunity. But even in the greater Christian church, interdenominationally and in society in general, there are many dividing lines that are appearing around us, and it seems there are more every day. And these dividing lines can be between things like race, political parties, etc. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's as simple as whether or not you put a piece of cloth on your face for some people. But I want to be very careful here and make sure that we are on the same page when I talk about scriptural unity. I'm not talking about accepting every doctrine or accepting every viewpoint or belief that someone may hold. For example, 
if someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ is promoting false doctrine or perhaps advocating for something like abortion, which goes against the teaching in Scripture. Disagreeing with them and showing them what is right through Scripture is not disunity. Neither should conformity with certain standards or mandates made by man, which we see a lot of in this area, neither should that be considered unity. Conformity is not unity. And likewise, not adhering to those certain earthly standards and mandates of man, not adhering to those should not be considered disunity. What I am talking about in regards to unity is among fellow believers, those who are adhering to the teachings of Scripture and holding fast to those tenets. Those of like mind should be one in Christ. Just as we see in this passage where it clearly states that Christ is our peace. He is the unifying factor in this body of believers. We need to come to grips with that reality. There's only one way to peace. There's only one way to unity. And it's nothing that we can do on this earth. It is everything that was done on the cross by the only perfect man, God in the flesh, who paid the price for our sins. And we need to realize that no earthly reason for division should or could outweigh the sacrifice of Christ. How can our fellow citizenship in the household of God be outweighed by earthly matters? And it truly breaks my heart to see this disunity in the church. And if it brings sorrow to us, imagine the sorrow that God feels. After all, the sacrifice of his son that was made for our atonement is sufficient to cover all of these earthly issues that we allow to bring division. And if we claim to be among those who are redeemed fellow members of God's household, and we allow division to fester, if we are actively participating in anything that contributes to the breaking down of the unified body of Christ, and I know I've been guilty of this, and I'm sure that there is not one among us who is not guilty of this. Whether within our local church body or among fellow believers, even in our own families with family members that claim to be fellow believers in Christ, or it could be just from our one denomination to another, or from one non-denominational church to another, whatever it may be. But like this message of Christ's unifying work, there was only one remedy for the Ephesian church. So it is that there is only one remedy for the modern church. And if we find ourselves allowing division or adding the lack of scriptural or adding to the lack of scriptural unity, our only hope is to look back and remember our positional reality before Christ, to recognize his redeeming work on the cross, to repent of our failure to live in the new promises he's provided, and to restore each other through these truths that Paul taught in this letter to the Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning.